What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? one 288 ewtn I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. one 288 3986 Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to another week of Call to Communion here on EWTN. This is the program that uh, is just for you if you're a non-Catholic. That's right, we're here to answer questions that you might have about the Catholic faith that maybe you couldn't get those answers uh, with uh, people that you know or golly, anybody. So, we're here for you. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of the U.S. and Canada, you will want to dial the U.S. country code, the number 1, and then 205-271-2985. That's just for you if you're listening to us outside of North America. Again, that number, one 205 271-2985. And of course, you can always send us an email. The address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Jeff Burson handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we are streaming there right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Jeff will see it. He'll say, hark. There's an email, there's a question, and he'll send it to us here in Studio One, and we'll let t- we'll take it from there. I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you today? Great. How was your weekend? Uh, it was it was full of people and things, and that was good. People and things, mm-hmm. but not food. Let's see. No, I I you know I, I I'm the cook in my house. I do all the cooking. It was it was pretty good on the food department. Glad I, uh, to hear it. Yeah, I, I made a fantastic. Um, okra, tomato, and red pepper thing last night that I ate quantities of. We had a priest friend over for dinner last night, and Adrienne made from scratch a flan, and it was just spectacular. That's just wonderful. So, yeah. So, we're going to lead off with this question here from Nick and Carol in Oregon. Dear Dr. Andrews and Tom, we are wondering what the Catholic Church defines as sins of omission. Is this when you're at a gathering of friends and family and attendees use the Lord's name in vain in conversations and we don't say anything? We usually quietly say a little prayer like, God forgive them, they know not what they do. Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So sins of admission, really the focus is first and foremost on the duties of your state of life. Okay. And so, you know, here would be a classic sin of omission. Let's say you're the father of a family. You have an obligation to love your wife, love your children, uh, care for them, mm-hmm. provide for them materially and spiritually and emotionally. Let's say you don't do that and you prefer to spend your time fly fishing, which, I mean, that, that such worse things have happened like that mm-hmm. in the yeah. universe. You know, yeah, yeah. Husbands, that, fathers that don't spend time with their families and instead go off and fly fish with the guys or worse, uh, hang out at the watering hole, you know, at the end of the day in the bar with their buddies. That would be somebody who was grossly negligent in their duty as a father. Um, you know, if you're a uh, same thing, you can say for your mother. Well, say you're a priest. Well, the duty of your duties of your state of life are first and foremost to serve the people of God by offering the sacraments and and pastoral care. What if you prefer to spend all your time on the golf course? Not good. And you take a lackadaisical <laughs> attitude towards your pastoral ministry, and uh, you know you don't show up for mass or. 
you're not present to people when you are there, you're kind of yeah. off in la-la land, uh, that would be a failure to attend to the duties of your state of life. Now, the situation that you raised uh, is more nuanced because the obligation to admonish the sinner um, comes with some with some qualifications, and one of them is that the person you're admonishing, you, you need to have a kind of good uh, sort of moral certainty that they're going to heed the admonition and that what you say isn't going to further inflame them against the faith. So the, your your goal there is to help a person grow in virtue, and correcting them publicly may or may not be the best way to do that, depending on the context and the individuals involved. So that's a matter of prudential judgment. Mm. All right. Well, uh, Nick and Carol in Oregon, thank you so much uh, for your very good question. Here's one now from Kevin. As a lifelong Catholic, I've always had a question about something involving purgatory. So if we go to confession and we're in a state of grace and God has forgotten our sins, as they say, then why do we still need to be cleansed of our sins and faults in purgatory? Well, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't. Oh, okay. Right? Um, but we're not the ones that make that judgment. Hmm. Right. So so the question of, you know, obviously, it, it is possible to live the Catholic faith generously, to, to uh, participate in the sacraments, to do your penances and say your prayers and, and offer your sacrifices, die and go straight to heaven. Um, but God ultimately is the judge of whether we've done that uh, appropriately or not, whether yeah. we're sufficiently detached from sin and whether our penance was with, done with sufficient faith and charity. Uh, we don't make that judgment. But God could very well say, hey, you know, so-and-so, uh, they went to confession, they did their penance, they did it in a spirit of generosity and deep humility and repentance, and that, you know, that took care of it. I mean, this is what happened to Dismas. Yeah. On the cross, he said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and I, I'm getting what my deeds deserve. And that was sufficient penance on his part, that act of faith and humility in Christ, for Jesus to canonize him on the spot. Yeah, pretty sweet deal on that. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for your question. And finally, here's one from Michelle. Dr. Andrews, how often is kinsmen or brethren translated as Adelphos or Adelphoi in the Greek Septuagint? And if other words are sometimes used, why? Thank you for your answer, Michelle. Well, you know, in my spare time, one of the things I do is I keep a running list of the number of times kinsman is translated as Adelphoi in yes. the Septuagint. Uh, no, 37. Right 37. In the Bible. That's, that's one of those <laughs> factoids that I just have in the back of my mind. Oh, wow. <laughs> I have no idea. I have no idea. And if I were going to answer that question, I'd have to go, you know, I'd have to go pull a... Um, in concordance of the Septuagint, uh, which which things are hard to come by, actually. You'd really need an yeah. academic library. And my, my days of living in the academic library, unfortunately, are over. I really enjoyed those <laughs> days. I used to used to check into the library, you know, at 7 o'clock in the morning. I had my own little kiosk at the university and books stacked, you know, from floor to ceiling. And I, I lived in that world of just immersing myself in academic literature. I thought it was the greatest life. I, I loved that. My wife had different feelings about yeah, it. Yeah, I, yeah. I thought that was fantastic. <laughs> But, uh, you know, but today I, I don't have that kind of access and I don't do that kind of research anymore. Um, but that's what I'd have to do. I'd have to actually go pull the concordance uh, or sure. some electronic database and, and actually start counting them up. I have no idea how many times that's, that's used. Well, there you go. And uh, we thank you so much for all of these great emails. In a moment, we'll get to the phones and we'll begin with Susan in Eastport, Michigan. Here is the number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders on Call to Communion. 
It's called a communion in progress here on this Monday afternoon with Dr. David Anders on EWTN. Our phone number for you is 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question about the Catholic faith, 833-288-3986. Another great resource uh, if you want to know more about the Catholic faith is uh, one of our other radio networks, EWTN Radio Essentials, where you can hear the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. It's celebrated every two hours 8 a.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Eastern, noon Eastern, and all, all through the day. Plus, rosaries, chaplets, stations of the cross, and other devotionals every hour. You can listen to EWTN Radio Essentials by going to the EWTN app, which is, of course, a free download, and also at EWTNRadio.net. And if you want to go there, just look for that Listen Live, and then select Radio Essentials, and you're good to go. If you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We'll begin with uh, Susan, first-time caller in Eastport, Michigan, listening on the EWTN app. Hello, Susan. What's on your mind today? Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call, Dr. Anders. Um, So what's on my mind is that we have a very close family member who um, who's long left the Catholic faith, and her, her current religion has her convinced that the King James Bible is the only true Bible, and she bases this on, um, she bases it on Dan- Daniel chapter 2, I think around verse 20, 24, around there, and we're trying to interpret what she could be thinking, and um, we just wondered why, why that is, and just as a little reference, she also believes the earth is flat. So why is it that she adheres strictly to the King James Bible? Um, yeah, thank you. So I, I don't know what her argument is based on uh, Daniel chapter 2, except that uh, it—I don't know. I'd have, I mean, I, I haven't heard that particular argument before, but— uh, I, I am familiar with the uh, the school of thought called called King James only Christians, and that, uh, sometimes they'll make an argument based on the underlying manuscript tradition that they think is preferable to the critical text. That doesn't seem to be her argument. She seems to have one grounded in some sort of apocalyptic view of history. That's also possible. Maybe she thinks that previous translations were corrupted by the by the hated Roman Antichrist, who is the Pope, or something. I mean, that's typical of fundamentalists. So yeah. anything that comes out of the Catholic tradition, they would throw that away, and somehow or another they think the King James Version was preserved from that. Um, but, uh, I mean, the problems with this th- are just mammoth. They're astronomical. And the, the flat earth thing, we'll get to that in a second. Um you know, sounds to me like she has become a card-carrying fundamentalist. That that's this is this is what she's done. And and you know, the appeal of fundamentalism is that it offers you um, the illusion of certainty. Um, and no, none of us are intellectually or psychologically comfortable with uncertainty. That causes anxiety. So somebody gives you a formula and says, "Here are the hard and fast lines. You play within these lines, and everything will be okay." And that that that's a really attractive at one level, attractive vision of reality uh-huh. requires that you cut off everything that falls outside those lines, and so it's also very dehumanizing. And the view of the Bible that many fundamentalists have, I think, is just dead wrong. They, they typically understand the Bible to be something like a manual of theology or an instruction or user's manual on the Christian life that tells you what to think and what to mm, do, yeah. and that everything you need to know about everything is in the Bible. That's clearly not what the Bible is, and it's clearly not what God intends 
FRC is the Bible for. But if you take that view, I mean, to an extreme, then you would say that even the perspectives of the biblical authors, when they're not when they're not laid out, when they're not cashed out in explicit statements, that we have to sort of put ourselves in the frame of reference that a biblical author would have when he made a particular statement. So if a biblical author, for example, says that the sun rises and the sun sets, and he seems to mean by that that the sun is a giant orb that moves through the sky, then that would rule out um, uh, heliocentrism as a, as a theory of the universe. And, I mean, that's, that's just a terribly naive way of understanding the Bible and what its function is. Um, but that the appeal again is like if this is if I have a guidebook I don't need anything else other than my guidebook, and uh, and its meaning is seems patently clear to me right now what's the Catholic view of these things well Catholics see the scriptures as inspired texts to be sure and given to us because of the utility Saint Paul says they're useful for teaching and training and rebuke and righteousness and so that the man of God can be equipped for every good work. I mean, yeah. they're, they're therefore equipping us in the life of faith and virtue, and they're a source of theological reflection and prayer and, and the principal uses within the liturgy of the Church, but they're not intended uh, by God or the Catholic faith to be a rule of faith, as if they were the comprehensive statement of everything that a human being needs to think or do or believe or act. And uh, the rule of faith for the Catholic is, in fact, the teaching Church, the magisterium, uh, and the sacred tradition, of which the scriptures are a part. And uh, we also recognize, however, the value of human reason, that we're created in the likeness and image of God, uh, in our intellect and our freedom, and that's what makes us like God, and, and that we have a real capacity to know things about the natural world, about the moral life, about God and ourselves, without access to revelation. And those things are true because God made them, the same God that made our minds, made the physical world. And so if I can circumnavigate the globe in a ship— and discern that it is in fact round, or I can, you know, measure the parallax of Venus and and uh, and come up with a better cosmology uh, than the Ptolemaic, and I can experimentally confirm also that the, the sun is the center of the solar system. Then those are true because they're observably true; they're evidently true. Sure. In the same way that you know what I had for breakfast is an evident fact, and and I'm not going to disbelieve that because someone's interpretation of Revelation says contrary. When, when the evident facts of reason come into apparent conflict with the data of Revelation, then I've made a mistake someplace in my exegesis, and I have to go back and reinterpret the Scripture accordingly to accommodate what's evident to reason. Now, the same thing can work in reverse. Like, if someone makes an outlandish statement about the physical world mm -hmm. that conflicts with something that I know in theology, you know, I, I look for the resolution to that tension, but I don't necessarily privilege a naive understanding of the Bible as a way of resolving that conflict. Is that helpful for you, Susan? Yes, it is. I think with all, with, with all that in mind, I think it's the context from this, this, these verses in Daniel. Somehow she's exegeted that God has given all, all powers to—kings were given powers by God, and therefore King James— Oh, okay, so she's assigning a kind of magisterial authority to King James. Well, that would make that would make good sense, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, it's, it's a stupid argument, but I mean, I, <laughs> I understand the logic of it. Yeah, I understand the logic of it. Um, now, the, the irony there is that there have been Christian monarchs and kings for 2,000 years, uh, you know, beginning with Constantine the Great. And let me tell you something, the, the scriptures that were read in the churches during the reign of Constantine the Great were not those of the King James Version of the Bible. Mm. Well, there you go, Susan. Appreciate your call. Great way to kick off the week. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. Call to communion on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN Radio. Uh, David is listening to us on YouTube today. He says, I observe many different denominations. In each denomination, Paul is used as an example in so many ways. Why is Paul so very important? What is it about Paul? Why is Paul a powerful influence with Protestants? Yeah, thanks. So Paul, historically, is clearly a critical figure in the history of Christianity. And he's important to Catholics as well as he is to Protestants. Mm -hmm. Uh, Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, and we owe to St. Paul working out the theology and articulating what is the relationship of the Gentile world to the to the Christian faith. And mm-hmm. that was really Paul's contribution. And we, we take that for granted today because the church is overwhelmingly Gentile, and it never occurs to us that Gentiles as members of the people of God would be problematic. But from the position of a first-century Jew, the idea of reconciling Gentiles to the God of Abraham without requiring that they become Jews was unthinkable. And so Paul's position was a very radical one and a controversial one at the time, one that, you know, got him stoned and beaten and, you know, left to die because it was so offensive to uh, many people in Judea. But uh, that's, that's his major contribution. And, um, but that's not why he's important to Protestants. Protestants typically f- underplay that aspect of Paul's ministry, which really is the whole point of Paul. And uh, instead, they read Paul through the hermeneutical lens. Hermeneutics means interpretive lens. Through the interpretive lens of Martin Luther. And Luther had an interpretation of Christianity based, in my judgment, on a misreading of St. Paul. And the only way you can come to this understanding of Christianity is, is through the Pauline texts as interpreted by Luther. Right? There, are, there are basically five chapters in all of Paul's corpus. Paul is attributed with 13 letters in the New Testament, which is a big chunk of the New Testament. Yeah. 27 letters in the New Testament, 13 of them are attributed to Paul. Uh, but in all those books, there's only basically about five chapters that discuss the relationship of God's grace to the law, to the Jewish law. All right? mm-hmm. And Luther, I believe, profoundly misread those texts, does not know what they're talking about, and he, he, but he used them to come up with his signature doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, there's, I don't think that those texts teach Luther's doctrine of justification. But one thing is clear. Every place else in the sacred scripture, when the question of the moral life and the law is raised, it's, it's unambiguous that the, that the position of scripture is you have to do the moral law and that your salvation depends on it. I mean, that's unambiguously the teaching of the rest of the Bible. Um, it's unambiguously the teaching of Paul, but Luther had a way of nuancing those five chapters to suggest otherwise, that the law and the gospel were somehow in conflict and in opposition to one another. And because that became the central doctrine, the hinge on which all Protestantism uh, falls uh, or turns, to to be a, a self-conscious, aware doctrinal Protestant, you really have to have your head wrapped around the axle of, of Luther's interpretation of these five chapters in Paul. And so Paul becomes the, the Luther's Paul, not the real apostle, but Luther's right, right. Paul becomes the paradigm for understanding the entirety of the Christian faith. I had a conversation with an evangelical uh, friend of mine this weekend, actually, about the interpretation of uh, the parable or the story of uh, Zacchaeus in the New Testament. Uh-huh. And, uh, and it was, uh, this individual wanted to assert 
well, basically a Lutheran interpretation of the passage that I felt like did total violence to the story and, <laughs> and got completely away from the point of it. But the issue being, they, every text of the Bible gets interpreted through this Lutheran slash Pauline lens, if you're a Protestant. And so that goes a long way to explaining his centrality in the, uh, in the Protestant uh, tradition. David, thank you so much for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. We hope that's helpful for you. Called to communion here on EWTN, uh, Ramon called from Seattle and says, how do we get past scrupulosity? I'm having a lot of trouble with it. Right. So scrupulosity is really, I mean, it's a moral problem, but it's also a psychological problem. And it kind of depends on the severity of the case. Uh, it's a, it can be a species of what psychologists call obsessive compulsive disorder, and uh, and so it's not just a, I mean it, it has theological implications, but it's not just a theological problem. It's this, the same kind of disposition that leads the fellow to you know wash his hands ten thousand times and that yeah. sort of thing. And so if depending on how badly you suffer from it, I mean I would I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't hesitate to say you might seek out professional help from a therapist or even a psychiatrist yeah. and there are certain um, you know SSRIs for example antidepressant medications that can be very effective in treating obsessive compulsive disorder if taken in sufficient doses but I'm not a psychiatrist so I'm not making that prescription I'm just saying go talk to a professional sure there are things that you can do that can alleviate that if it's a psychological problem um, you know from a from a practical spirituality point of view the classic, uh, treatment in the Catholic tradition for scrupulosity is to pick one confessor who is good at this, who knows about your situation, and to practice a kind of scrupulous, if you'll pardon the word, <laughs> uh, obedience to that one confessor and not to switch confessors. And here's why you want to do that. Because, you know, let's say um, uh, if I suffered from scrupulosity, which I, I don't, I think, thanks, thanks be to God, but let's say I did, and I, you know, I scratch my nose during the radio show, and I somehow I get the idea that that's, my gosh, I must have caused some, some poor soul to fall into sin, because I've shown irreverence during a Catholic radio show, and I'm going to go to hell because I scratched my nose. And I've, I've heard people say manifestly crazy stuff like that. And so then I go to my confessor, and I say, well, you know, Father, I've sinned. He says, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, I scratch my nose during a broadcast on EWTN. <laughs> he says, Anders, that's, that's totally not a sin. And you're not allowed to confess that to anybody else, and you're not ever allowed to bring it up again. And uh, and so I leave the confessional, and I'm pretty un uneasy about it, but he's absolved me, and then lo and behold, I go scratch my nose again next week. And, like, there's the, the, the genuinely scrupulous person, all they want to do is run to the confessional and confess scratching their nose again. But this guy has bound me, and I've mm. agreed to be obedient to him. You're not allowed to confess that again. You're not allowed to confess that again. And, and it, you, it makes you live with the discomfort, and eventually it's exposure therapy. Eventually right. you learn to tolerate that discomfort and recognize my confessor says this isn't a sin. I have to live like it's not a sin, and you become habituated to it, and you gradually get well. As they say in exercise, reps reps. Got to do those reps. And we hope that's helpful for you, Ramon. Uh, thanks for listening to us, in, to us in Seattle. Glad to hear from you. In a moment, we're going to be uh, getting a question here from James watching on YouTube. He has, uh, he's 
going to tell us exactly what is stopping him from becoming a Catholic, and it's something we've heard a number of times on this program for sure. We'll also be talking with Sophie in California, uh, Diego in New Hampshire. Looks like a couple of lines are open for you right now. Do you have a question for Dr. David Anders, or maybe you'd like to explain to us what is stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Here's that number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-EWTN. 3986, or if you prefer, uh, shoot us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Back in a moment with the Monday afternoon edition of Call to Communion here on EWTN. Stay with us. It's called a communion with Dr. David Andrews on this Monday afternoon here on EWTN. Hey, congratulations going out to a longtime member of our EWTN radio family, and that would be Catholic Radio in South Carolina. They are celebrating an amazing 20 years with us, serving Greenville, Spartanburg, Greer, Charleston, and Hilton Head. Congratulations to Michael Brennan and his great team there from all of us at EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. Here is Sophie in California watching on EWTN television today. Hey there, Sophie. What's on your mind today? Sophie in California, are you there? Let us uh, put her on hold then, if you would, please, Charles. We're going to put her on hold. Let's go now to Diego in New Hampshire, listening on his Alexa device. Hey, Diego, what's on your mind today, sir? Hello. Thank you for taking my call. I teach uh, RCIA, and I read through the uh, the Catholic Bible and the Protestant Bible. And um, in the Protestant one, there's... A, a line where it says by faith alone, and then there's a uh, a parenthesis put in by Luther that says, "I'm sorry, the parenthesis is on the word alone." And then he puts down in the bottom of the footnotes it says, uh, "the uh, the text demands it." So I, I can't find it. I want to find that very phrase again. I don't know whether it said faith alone, whether it said justified or saved by faith alone, but he added the word alone. Okay. Yes, he did. That's in the Luther Bible. So, right, so where, where was it? Which which of his epistles? Paul's epistles. Oh well, it would have been it would have been uh, in Romans or Galatians. I mean, and I it would have been in probably Romans three or four, or in Galatians three or four. I mean, there's only there's only about four chapters that it could have been. I mean, I know the text you're talking about. I can't remember where in Luther's corpus he puts that exact translation and that emendation, but it's. It's going to be one of those four texts. So in, yeah. in any English translation that's based on the Luther— I mean, Luther translated the Bible into German, and that's a standard translation for Lutherans in Germany. Um, and an English translation based on the Luther Bible is going to have that in there. Yeah, it shouldn't be too hard to find. Diego, thank you so much uh, for your call. Uh, we have a question here from Sue. Sue says, We have a very close relationship to my son-in-law's parents, a wonderful, loving couple, faithful Catholics who have been married 35 years. Tragically— his mom, my son-in-law's mom, was diagnosed with a rare form of dementia. She has progressed rapidly and is now unable to walk or speak. Unfortunately, there are people in my son-in-law's father's life who are now advocating for him to start dating and, quote, move on with his life, including his own children. It just breaks my heart that people who knew her 
advocate for casting her aside because of a disease that has taken so much from her. You, Dr. Anders, have shared previously that your father died from ALS, which is a similar situation to this, given the rapid progressive loss of physical and speech function. Any thoughts? God bless, Sue. Yeah, Sue, first of all, I'm terribly sorry for your um, your son-in-law's uh, mother-in-law and her situation. Yeah. It's just awful. Um, and I'm horrified at the counsel that's being given to his father-in-law. That uh, I mean, we're, we're bound by our marriage vows until death do us part. And one of the things that we promise, and you don't have to be a Catholic to promise this, is in sickness and in health. And th- they seem to be saying, well, you know, uh, we didn't mean that bit about sickness. Sickness rolls around, uh, we, we're out of there. Wow. And that, that just strikes me as horrifying. Yeah. And, and, I mean, just apply the principle of the golden rule. Do unto others what you would have them do unto you. I mean, if you if I fell into this condition, if I were suffering from dementia, I certainly wouldn't want my wife or my children to abandon me, nor should I abandon them in, in turn. So that's just that's just awful. Um, and, um, you know, we had a lot of conversations about end-of-life care in my family. And, uh, you know, my, my father's own position on it was he said, I want to stick around um, as, uh, as long as I can be useful to my to my family and and the lord can take me when he can takes me Mm -hmm. Uh, and i don't want to commit suicide and i don't want anybody to murder me right and he got it all right i mean that's the position yeah um but uh you know but he some people thought well you know what do you do when when you stop being as it were useful and the catholic position is that never happens you never stop being useful. Yeah. You might stop being able to communicate. You might stop being able to teach or to provide. But you never stop being useful because you're always an occasion for someone else to show charity to. And, you know, and, and, and this is just very personal to me. But when, you know, my dad was falling into that kind of condition, my thought was, look, even if he can't speak, which, thank God, he actually didn't lose the ability to speak. It's rare for ALS patients. But yeah. I say, even if he can't speak, uh, I can still love him. Sure, and I'm 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 committed to loving him as hard as I can love him as long as I can have him. Yeah, absolutely, and we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much, uh, Sue, for your very poignant email. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's uh, give Sophie another try. Sophie is listening in California, watching on EWTN television. Hey, Sophie, what's on your mind today? Sophie, Sophie's got her TV turned on. That's what the issue is, I think. Sophie, can you hear us now? Mm, well, well, we got to leave that. Uh, Sophie, perhaps you could call us back another time. Let's go to Connie right here in Alabama, listening in Foley, uh, also watching on EWTN television today. Connie, what's on your mind? Hi. Uh, thank you, Dr. Anders, for what you do. I uh, really appreciate your, uh, your show. And I had a question uh, I don't. I'm not sure what chapter and verse it is, but in Romans, Paul talks about how God shows mercy to those He wills, and He hardens the hearts of those He wills. And also, who is the clay to say to the potter, "Why did you make me this way?" And I know Catholics and Protestants have different beliefs about predestination, and this almost sounds like God predestines some to heaven and some to hell. But I know that's not the Catholic position. So is this more about God foreknows who will respond to his grace and who will not? 
Uh, could you comment on that passage, please? Yeah, sure. So the, 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 the key to St. Paul, if you keep this in mind, it illumines almost everything in Paul's letters. Paul's overriding concern in life was the question of the relationship of Jews to Gentiles. That's what he cared about. Um, much later theologians, especially Protestant theologians, cared about the question of how can I know I'm going to heaven? That's not Paul's question. Now, he's read as if that were his question, but that's not what Paul's talking about. Paul, Paul's really his major concern is do Gentiles have to follow the law of Moses when they come to believe in Christ and they want to be counted among the children of Abraham? And that includes this passage in well, Romans 9 to 11 is the section of the book that you're talking about. And, and it has to do with God's mercy in calling the Gentiles and the unresponsiveness of the Jews to the message of Christ. And, of course, Paul states his expectation that, that, that they're not lost on that account, that the, the promise to the Jews and the children of Abraham is not null and void, and God will be faithful to his promise to Abraham, that his, all of his descendants will be blessed and a blessing to all the world. And so I'm now going to step a little bit outside the realm of Catholic dogmatic theology, and I'm going to share my private theological opinion, which you are not obligated to follow, right? It's within the bounds of Catholic dogmatic teaching, but it's, it's my own personal approach to this thorny question, but I think it's one that's consistent with the text and with the wider spirit of Catholic theology. Election, predestination, um, may mean many things, but at the very least, uh, we can look to the predestination of Abraham, the election, the calling of Abraham, and of Christ, Christ himself, as paradigmatic for what these words mean and, and how they should be lived out. God called Abraham from among his people in, in Chaldea uh, and said, go to the land I'll show you and I'll make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Even more so, Christ was called uh, to a particular ministry for the sake of the salvation of the world. In each case, the, the, the election of Abraham, the election of Christ, were not for their own sake, it wasn't a question of, well, Abraham gets to go to heaven or, or, you know, the human soul of Jesus gets to go to heaven. It was for the sake of the world. This was election for the sake of the world. And, and Christ extends his ministry. The ministry of the Incarnation is perpetuated through the Church. And there's a real sense in which those of us who are Catholic have been called by God. We, we say that faith is a gift. It's not due to our own merits or virtues that we're Catholic. We're called to this. But again, it's, I'm not called to be Catholic um, just for the sake of that I can know I'm going to heaven, um, something I don't actually know. I'm called to be Catholic so that I can participate in what the Second Vatican Council called the light of the world. The Church is the light of the world that the mission of the Church is to, is to express and live the generous grace of God to the world in Christ and to make that manifest to as many people as possible, knowing that uh, that light can shed over all of humanity. And the Catholic teaching is that God offers grace to every soul, uh, and that grace is resistible. And so there is an election, right? I'm, I'm elect to be part of the Catholic Church, and that's a tremendous dignity but my belonging to the Catholic Church isn't for my sake alone. It's for the sake of the world, even as yours is and Tom's is and the Pope's is. Like, we're here with a mission to represent Christ to the world. And that, that can come in the form of direct evangelism. 
but it could also come in the ministry of somebody like Mother Teresa, who, yeah. who made a point of not proselytizing people. Like, she was not about trying to make Hindus into Catholics. She was about trying to be Jesus to poor people, yeah. right? That's an election, but it's not the kind of election. It doesn't, doesn't damn the Hindu. Right. It's, it, it gives her a vocation to the ministry of charity. That's a much, I think, in my, my point of view, that's a much more agreeable way to think about election than sure. God picks out this soul to go to heaven and picks out that soul to go to hell. Right. Is that helpful for you, Connie? Yes. Thank you very much. You are most that. welcome. Thanks so much for your call. Call to communion here on EWTN. Be sure to join us for a Catholic connection with Teresa Tamio tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern. And uh, tomorrow, Teresa welcomes Dr. Meg Meeker. They'll be talking about a new report, <clears throat> excuse me, calling for social media companies to make reforms to safeguard children and protect their learning environments. A fascinating program, very timely, tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. Eastern, right here on EWTN Radio. You remember, David, uh, <clears throat> Excuse me. earlier in the program, we were talking about scrupulosity. I do. Angelina in New Jersey wants to know, well, what if my scrupulosity comes about from having been abused, having been away from the church for 30 years, and really wanting to get confession just right? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So first of all, how horrible to have been abused. Oh. And it is very normal for people who suffer abuse and have other kinds of traumas mm -hmm. to, well, to bear the wounds of that psychologically and even physically for a long time. And you're certainly not responsible for those wounds. Those were, those were inflicted upon you. And my only response to that is, is just uh, hopefully compassion. I'm so sorry you had those experiences. Um, I would tell you, however, with respect to really wanting to your confession right, you don't have to have that anxiety. That's a really unnecessary anxiety. The, all you really have to do is be sincere and honest. And, you know, you've, you've got the rest of your life to be Catholic in. You know, you don't have to achieve perfection before you step back in yes. the church. You know, yes. I mean, my first confession was a mess. Because I didn't have a live instruction on how to go to confession. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, I had virtually none. And But I knew I needed to go in order to be confirmed. So I just walked into the parish one day, got in line, and uh, said to the priest, look, I'm getting ready to be confirmed, and I don't know much about confession. So what if I just go down the Ten Commandments? W would that be okay? He said, that'd be fine. So I went, you know, number one, check. Number two, check. You know, <laughs> I went down the list and said everything I could think of. And, and uh, it was fairly unsophisticated, but uh, but it got the job done because my goal was not you know to make sure that uh, every single solitary thing that I'd ever every wayward thought I ever had had been written down, but to be reconciled to God. Now, in terms of what the church requires, we're only required to confess the mortal sins—that's the grave sins—of which we are aware. If we're not aware of them, if we've forgotten them, if they've passed out of our memory, you're not obligated to confess them. Yeah. And so, you know, and sometimes you might have a question, and particularly scrupulous people may have a question about thinking that everything is a mortal sin. I'm really sorry. And for people who fall into that, it's very kind of devastating. It is. To them psychologically. And that's kind of what the confessor's there for. You can say, ah, I'm not so sure if this is even grave matter, but, mm. you know, what do you think about this, Father? And you can, he can, you know, if he's, if he's a skillful confessor, not all confessors are skillful, but if he's skillful, he can help guide you in that and help you, you know, sort of perfect that in the future so that you don't unnecessarily torture yourself. But the important thing is just just get on in there. 
Yes. And don't worry about it. The fact that you're showing up is really the most important thing. Yes, indeed. Angelina, we hope that's helpful for you. Thank you so much uh, for your question. Here's that question now from James watching on YouTube that we talked about before the break. He says, what is stopping me is Mary, especially perpetual virginity. I have looked at becoming Catholic about three times, but apparently that is what is holding him back. Yeah, wow. I I sure wish I had you on the phone, James. I'd love to dialogue with you more about why that's a particular problem for you. Um, So, I mean, I I can think of a few reasons why it might be a problem for you. Some some might argue, well, I don't want to hold a perpetual virginity because I don't think it's taught in the Bible. Um, I've heard that position taken. Um, and uh, it's certainly not contradicted by the Bible. I, my, my view is the Bible's fairly quiet on that question. Mm. Um, it's clear that Christ was conceived of a virgin and born of a virgin after the birth of Christ. Um, you know, there, the fathers found a hint in Mary's response to Gabriel when she says, how can this be, for I know not a man? She was betrothed to be married. Yes. So her, her befuddlement at the Annunciation doesn't make sense, if she intends to have a normal marriage. But if she intends lifelong continence, it makes more sense that she would say, I don't see how I'm going to have a child. Um, but that's not, you know, that's not dispositive. And, and I could understand a Protestant who took issue, so that's stretching the text. But the Bible doesn't say that she ever did anything different. All right. So at the very least, I think the, the Bible tends to perpetual virginity, but could be interpreted as silent. The, mm. Obviously, the, the brothers of the Lord that are mentioned in Scripture are identified by name. We know who they are, and they're all the children of Mary, the wife of Clopas. They're not Mary, the mother of God's right. children. So right. nothing in there about about her having other children. Um, so the Bible's, you know, maybe a little quiet on it. Now, Francis Turretin, who was a Protestant theologian of the 17th century, vehemently anti-Catholic, very well known in the Reformed tradition, uh, believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary, hated the Catholic Church, but believed in the perpetual virginity on the w- on the unanimous witness of Christian antiquity. And his position was, look, how can I take a position that's contradicted by all of the fathers? And all the fathers thought that Mary was perpetually a virgin. That's got to count for something. These are the same men that gave us the canon of the New Testament. Yeah. And if they're wrong on Mary, they're they could be wrong on the Bible too, so I, you know, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go against that. And it's really that it's really on the strength of sacred tradition as divine revelation that, that Catholics hold this doctrine and other Marian dogmas as well. So another objection, well, might be to sacred tradition. We could talk about that. But another objection some Protestants have is, uh, well, doesn't this devalue uh, the marriage state? I mean, if 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 Mary is understood to be perpetually virgin, doesn't that seem to say that, well, you know, normal marital marital relations and husband wife relationship that that's somehow second class and in that kind of a in that kind of a a bad thing? Well, the church's position is, um, well, marriage is a very good thing, but there is a sense in which it is decidedly second class. I mean, this is the teaching of Jesus, who says some people have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And St. Paul says it is better to remain unmarried if you have that gift. Mm. That, that um, chosen uh, celibacy in order to facilitate a gift of oneself to Christ in the church is objectively the better way. Now, it's not subjectively the better way for every individual, but it is objectively the better way. That's explicitly the teaching of Jesus. And it's an eschatological sign, meaning it points us, it orients us toward uh, the life of heaven where no one is married or given in marriage. Now, because Mary's also uh, physically the mother of Christ and a virgin, she is an icon both to the celibate religious and to the married. 
So she's like the perfect image of a Christian life, because if you're a celibate, you're a priest or a monk or a nun, you look to Mary. If you're a mother, you look to Mary. She's got you coming and going all yeah, day long as yeah. the perfect icon of Christian sanctity. And, um, and so that's, uh, you know, as, from the perspective of a married person, I'd like to say a word about my experience of the celibate vocation within the Catholic Church. To me, it has been a tremendous gift. Like, the celibate have been a gift to me. And there have been celibate priests and celibate religious who have been able to speak into my life in ways that marriage would have made impossible. And uh, you, you can only appreciate this by living as a Catholic, when you, when you step into the Catholic world and you begin to really experience it and have firsthand knowledge of really virtuous men and women religious who've given their lives in either in consecrated virginity or lifelong celibacy, mm-hmm. you, you, can you really begin to appreciate the gift that they are to the church and to, and to me as an individual? And they help you live your vocation of marriage. You know, if a man is tempted to stray a little bit from his uh, vows of fidelity, for example— well, just, just think about—you think about the, the continence and the chastity of your celibate friends, and, you know, they've given up more in that department than you have. It can kind of strengthen your resolve and your will to, to stay the course in your state of life. Definitely. Appreciate that, uh, James. <clears throat> uh, thank you so much uh, for your email. And we're going to close with this one here from uh, Ted in Jacksonville. Dear Tom and Dr. Anders, you know, Dr. Anders puts very little stock in Eucharistic miracles— in the way that he answers questions about them, and I really respect his opinions on them. However, with the unbelief we have among Catholics in the real presence, my opinion is, quote, with all the scientific evidence on hundreds of Eucharistic miracles, we should be shouting it from the rooftops. For instance, the fact that science has proven these hosts and blood all have the same blood type, are a muscle of the heart and still living. Even the one so famous from Lanciano several hundred years ago is still where anyone can see it, proven by modern-day science, to still be alive. My opinion is that God is trying to show the world he is present in Holy Communion to get Catholics to believe. Sincerely, Ted in Jacksonville. Okay, thank you so much. I profoundly appreciate the question. So I, I, I want to go on the record here. I, I don't want to ever be interpreted as saying that I devalue Eucharistic miracles. <clears throat> if God does a miracle, he does it for a reason, and, and I would be, I would, it would be really out of place for me to say, well, you know, God, you don't know what you're doing, right? <laughs> I, I don't ever want to say that I've devalued a miracle. Okay? Right. What I have said is that, say, devotion to particular revelations, private revelations, or purported miracles, is not a crucially important part of my own private spirituality. But I recognize that it is an extremely important part of many people's spirituality, and I urge them to embrace whatever spirituality will help them grow closer to God. So that's, that. you know, my show, my life has always been grounded in the dogmatic teaching of the Church and the yes. writings of the Fathers and the great theologians and the mm-hmm. witness of the saints, and that's really where I find the, my stuff as a Catholic. Um, you know, I don't, I don't go in as much for the devotions and that sort of thing, um, but I know plenty of Catholics who think that my way, my spirituality, is totally unworkable for them. Like, they're not going to sit down and read St. Augustine. And, and their approach to the relationship with Christ is precisely through the devotions and through the miracle stories and things of that sort. And, and many of them are much holier than I am, right? So I think it's, 
spiritual that this is the great thing about being Catholic. There are a thousand different spiritualities. You don't have to live my spirituality. I don't have to live yours. We can all be Catholic, share the same faith, and grow in holiness and, and charity and bear one another's burdens out of love for Christ without being cookie-cutter images of one another. Viva la difference. Amen. There you go. And one last question here, since we have just a second. This is from Kevin. Dr. Anders, I often pray for the intercession of St. Michael, but I have some confusion on a subject. Archangels are quite far down the scale of the hierarchy of angels. Why is Michael called the prince of the heavenly host? Sounds like he is the highest ranking angel. Please clarify, and God bless Kevin. All right. It's the same way that, like, the secretary of defense is not the same person as the joint chiefs. Okay. You know, or, or the, you know, whoever the, the head general is of the branches. I mean, it, that's just, it's just division of labor stuff, right? So in the, in the hierarchy of the angelic hosts, it's one thing to lead the armies of God. It's another thing to have the privilege of being before the throne of God singing holy, holy, holy. Mm. Right? I mean, they're, like, they're, they're different job descriptions for different yeah. angels. Yeah. So is it is it sort of apples and oranges? Um, uh, that's a funny analogy, you know, because the, the Thomistic doctrine is that every speci- every individual angel is a unique species. Yeah. So it would be like apples, oranges, grapes, bananas, tangerines, <laughs> <laughs> you know, off you go. Come Sooner or later. Yeah. Dragon fruit. <laughs> Rutabagas. <laughs> Rutabagas. Star pretty fruit. soon, pretty soon you're going to run out of uh, fruits run and vegetables. Run out of fruits, absolutely. I suppose so. Well, there you go, Kevin. Uh, thank you so much, and we hope that that clarifies it in your mind. Fast-moving show here. We had uh, a whole bunch of phone calls. We had a number of emails. We had people checking in YouTube and Facebook and uh that to me, that makes for a pretty good show. Dr. David Anders, thank you, sir. Thanks, Tom. Don't forget, we do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN Radio with uh, our live broadcast at 2 p.m. Eastern with an encore at 11 p.m. Eastern, and that's 8 p.m. on the West Coast. Did you miss part of today's show? Fear not. What did uh, John Paul the Great used to say? Be not afraid. You can always check out the podcast by going to EWTNRadio.net EWTNRadio.net. Charles will have that posted for you. He'll do it right after the show. Generally takes the internet a couple of hours to get caught up with all that. And then you can catch it later later on today on EWTNRadio.net. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow on the Tuesday edition of Call to Communion. See you then. God bless. God bless.